So as I said earlier, today is the second week of our series, Explore God. And each week we're posing a question that relates to the challenge of faith. And last week we asked the question, does life have a purpose? We looked at two, the two ways people find purpose. One is people, we search for it. We pursue it. We give ourselves to things like work, school, family, and play, hoping in return these things will give us a sense of meaning and satisfaction in life. But we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, this testimony of the Bible, and we also talked about the, the, the search of most people, that this type of search for meaning is destined to fail. At some point, satisfaction is always elusive. It's just beyond our grasp. Over and over, we're left having to renew the search. We have to push purchase one more time on Amazon because we want one more thing to satisfy us. But the Bible reveals this other way to discover meaning and satisfaction, and that's through receiving it. Instead of thinking we have to go find it ourselves, we are on the receiving end. It's given to us. God stepped out of the fog of our world in the form of a human being, and He revealed our purpose, the meaning of our lives. He showed humanity that the only hope for ultimate satisfaction and for lasting joy is to orient our lives entirely around Him. And when we do this, it's not to say that life becomes just this spiritual exercise. Actually, we still give ourselves to things like work, family, and play. We still eat, drink, and enjoy life. But we do all of this before the face of God. And we still look forward to when the longings of our heart are fully realized. When Jesus does return and bind up the wounds of the earth and we can eat and drink in His presence. Now, I go back to all of this because one of the things I started out saying last week was that all of the questions we're going to ask in this series have actually been around a long time. But to be truthful, I, I overreached when I said that. The question today is, is there a God? And we have an immediate problem with this question. Because the Bible does not really address the issue of atheism. This belief that there is no God. Think about it. From the very first line of the Bible, in the beginning, God. The Bible assumes belief in a creator. The existence of God. And it doesn't even take time to defend this, to give a backstory to it. Just boom, God. Even in the Psalms, King David, a couple of times in the Psalms says this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. But even in those cases, David isn't actually talking about what we understand as atheism. This modern way of coming up for arguments against the existence of God. That's not what David's getting at. David in these places is talking about people who live their lives as if there's no God, who believe in God, but they refuse to obey God. With their lives, they defy him. It's as if they're shaking their fists at him, challenging him and daring him to judge their ways of life. 
This isn't necessarily atheism. It's defying God at the heart. Now, another example in the Bible is the passage we've just listened to from Acts 17. So here we find the Apostle Paul in one of the most pluralistic, culturally sophisticated cities of the ancient world, the city of Athens. Athens was something like our Washington, D.C., our New York. Maybe these two merged together. It was the exporter of the newest ideas and the brightest thinking on everything. So Athens was the home of the world's most influential philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It was the home of the most important doctors in the ancient world, even the most important playwrights, the forerunners to Shakespeare. Now, when a lot of Christians or conservative religious people think about cities like this in our day, we think of the word godless. Godless. Because uh, uh, for a few reasons, a lack of morality, but also a decrease in the role that organized religion plays in these sorts of places. So when we think of somewhere like Manhattan, we would think that religion is going down. There is less organized religion in these places than there once was. But Paul is in this ancient city, and as he walks around, what does he notice? We're told that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, we're not talking about you know, religious people who go to Washington, D.C., and we uh, see how the people uh, you know, flock to the theaters and to these really enjoyable pleasures. And we're not talking about those things as idols. In Athens, we're talking about overt symbols of religion, temples, monuments that were built to their gods. So then when Paul has the chance to speak to them about Jesus, what does he say? Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He even brings up one of their altars that bears this inscription, to the unknown God. We're going to pause for just a moment. Okay, we're going to go for it. Paul's challenge in Athens this place that was steeped in organized religion, was to persuade already religious people to believe in an unknown God. And the real sting of Christianity for these people would be its radical exclusivity. This is not one God among many, the way you've commonly understood God, but the one true God. But remember, the question that we are dealing with is not, which is the true God. Rather, it's, is there a God? And whether you're a Christian or not, one of the things you have to notice is that this is a newer question in our world. This question couldn't even have been asked over 500 years ago. It couldn't be asked because belief in some form of God or gods was a given. This is a question that comes from our culture, where atheism has become this legitimate way of living one's life. Now, in some ways, the gifts of the last few centuries of rapid growth in the fields of science and technology, we need to acknowledge here, these are gifts. Anything we say from here forward does not negate that reality. These are gifts. 
but they've also given people a sense of mastery over the world. One of the beliefs that's come out of this, of science and technology, is that in humans' natural evolution and development, we will no longer need religion. So as we continue to gain knowledge, as we continue to gain a mastery over the human body and the world itself, we will no longer need religion. In fact, without it, the world will become a better place. So this is what John Lennon expressed in the song, Imagine, where he's saying, imagine a world with no religion. And the obvious implication of what he's saying there is that the world will be a better place without it. More recently than Lennon, in the last 20 years, there's been this rise in what have been called militant atheists. This is a a group of academics and writers like uh, Richard Dawkins who they take up the mantle of evangelizing atheism. This is a very recent thing. The short of their argument is that religion has been disproved and the quicker we see this, the better off we'll be. Now what's happened today on the back end of Lenin and the militant atheist and others is that there are many people in our culture, in the high schools in East Rockingham County, at JMU, and colleges all over the country, there are many people who are no longer even asking the question of whether there is a God. Many students at the high school and college level assume atheism. They feel like the question is settled. I I can recall being at LSU and having these conversations with uh, different people on campus that I would encounter, and how confidently they would say, uh, the Bible is a, it's a book of myths. There, there was no question in their minds about this. They, they believed that the question was settled. God does not exist. Now, all the while we're saying this, there are also Christians who at their most vulnerable, honest moments would admit to wrestling with the question of whether all of this is just a hoax. Whether we've been tricked and we feel like the faith is eroding around us. What I want to show this morning is that the question is by no means settled. It is by no means settled. And neither is the faith eroding around us. In fact, no matter how much people are trying to push God out of the picture, God keeps popping back in in surprising ways. I'm going to make Two points this morning. First, that everyone is religious. No matter how much people try to get away from religion, they end up religious. And two, that Christianity satisfies our deepest longings. We have to receive the God who is. And in doing so, our deepest longings will be satisfied. So first, everyone is religious. Remember that Paul stood up in Athens and he told the people, I see that you are in every way very religious. Now, I'm not going to tell you that this would work well today. Although only a couple of people responded positively to Paul. So I don't even know what our definition is for this working really well. But the truth is that what Paul said then is just as true now. 
Paul could stand up anywhere, East Rockingham, UVA's campus, JMU's campus, and he can say this, I see that in every way you are very religious, and he would be right. No matter how much we try to push religion to the side, we only replace it with with something else. This is what the late writer David Foster Wallace wrote. He says, What passes for atheism is still a mode of worship, a kind of anti-religious religion which worships reason, skepticism, intellect, empirical proof, human autonomy, and self-determination. You see, there's this myth that you can just subtract faith in God and what you get is raw humanity at its best, free from religion. But this is not what proves true. Because after the subtraction, we're left to create meaning in our own way, to define for ourselves what life is all about. And every time we do this, we end up religious again. Here is one example of a person responding uh, to an article about the meaning of life. And this person is somewhere in the realm of atheism. When the Hubble uh, Space Telescope joined to a black spot in the sky about the size of an eraser head for a week, it found 30,000 galaxies over 13 billion years old with many trillions of inferred, inferred planets. So the person asked in light of all of this, How significant are you? You are not a unique snowflake. You are nothing special. Nothing of who you are and what you will do in the short time you're here will matter. Everything short of that realization is vanity. This is a positive view on life, isn't it? So here's what they say in light of this. So celebrate life in every moment. Admire its wonders and love without reservation. I want you to notice something here. Notice how the person goes from life is meaningless and we are insignificant to celebrate life in every moment, admire its wonders, and love without reservation. These two ideas are completely disconnected. As one person put it, this is the same as saying, man descended from apes, therefore we must love one another. These things are not connected. The one doesn't follow from the other. But the problem is, We are religious. We are created for things like joy and love. So we are always going to seek them in one way or another. Now, this is the story of a deceased neuroscientist named Paul Kalanithi, I believe. Kalanithi died from lung cancer in 2015 at the age of 37. While he was writing his memoir titled, When Breath Becomes Air, Kalanithi grew up in a Christian family. He was an Indian American. But he turned away from the faith in his teens and his 20s to become an atheist, saying he believed that science made more sense of the world. Kalanithi was extremely successful in his field. He landed a postdoctoral fellowship in neuroscience at Stanford, and he spent his days in research trying to save the dying. But then, at age 36, he was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. This was the height of his career. 
And as he was dying, he says he realized that if everything has to have a scientific explanation and proof, then this is to banish not only God from the world, but also love, hate, meaning itself. And this is not the world we live in. At the end of his life, he confessed the inadequacy of his atheism. Scientific knowledge is inapplicable to the central aspects of human life, including hope, love, beauty, honor, suffering, and virtue. So he recanted his atheism and turned back to Christianity in the midst of his suffering and his dying because it gave meaning to life and it made more sense of the world. Now, there is this popular idea that religion is going away. But in fact, what we actually see, like in the case of Kalanithi, is the need for faith. So for one, in other parts of the world, such as Africa, China, and Latin America, Christianity is currently, at this moment, growing leaps and bounds. In fact, if... uh, if it continues on its current track in China. By 2050, two-thirds of the population of China will be Christian. The largest population of people in the world. And if it continues on its current track, two-thirds of the people will be Christian. Even in the United States, we, we live with this recognition that cultural Christianity is dying out, the, that the overarching culture is no longer our common faith. But what we are actually seeing here is an increase in those who are thoroughly committed to their faith. So the researchers of these statistics have been surprised because they anticipated the opposite. So we have a sociologist from George Mason University who says this as he responds surprisingly to the statistics. People want and need religion. Now remember, a few minutes ago I said that the Bible doesn't deal with atheism as we understand it, right? Part of what I'm trying to get at here is that the Bible doesn't have to. Because the Bible more accurately assesses who we are as human beings. We are always religious. As Paul says in the passage in Acts 17, as he's preaching, God has assigned boundaries to people so that they might seek and perhaps find him. We are always grasping for meaning in life, to worship something, and humanity always will. So this is our first point. All of us are religious. And secondly, we must receive the God who is. And in doing so, we will be satisfied. So in Acts 17, we find ourselves in a similar place to where we landed last week in searching for meaning. When it comes to discovering the meaning in life, we aren't going to find it by going on our own search, our own agenda, trying to discover it ourselves. We're forced into this humble posture of reception. We have to bow to God and we have to receive meaning from Him by giving ourselves to Him. You you might recall this quote from Augustine who I love to quote this. Augustine wore himself out trying to find God for much of his early life. 
And this is what he said after he became a Christian. God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Part of what we're going to say throughout this series is that in order to answer these sorts of questions, we have to have a posture that is willing to receive the answers. We live in a culture that popularizes the search. So if you listen to modern music, the search for God is wonderful, but the act of finding Him is not so popular. Here too, Paul is saying that everyone seeks after God. This is reality. They, they seek after God in the hope that they might perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. And Paul even builds this bridge to his Athenian audience by quoting some of their poets. There are some things they believe about God that are true. In Him, we live and move and have our being. We are His offspring. These quotes echo this primal longing of humanity to be connected to God. But humanity has been prideful. Humanity has assumed we can figure out who God is on our own. And so we've made lots of mistakes along the way. The Athenians assumed that God could be contained in a temple or in a gold or a silver statue. In our own culture... We've assumed we can master the universe, that we can become our own God, that we can solve the problems of the world with our own might. But instead, we find meaning, morality, love, and beauty to be diminished in the process. Humanity is left behind. What Paul says is that by repenting, by turning from our own pride, we wake up. It's as if the light is turned on for us and we can receive the God who is. God has fixed a day, Paul says, on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. God's judgment is a gift because it means that there is justice at the fabric of the world. That our desire for wrongdoing to be punished, that our anger with those who get off easy for putting down the weak, these are good instincts. And our desire for righteousness is going to be filled. And the resurrection, which is the one proof that Paul gives for the reality of Christianity, Resurrection not only makes the most sense of history, it, it really did happen, but it also means that there is genuine love and beauty in our world and that love and beauty will win the day. Jesus' death and resurrection conquered sin and death for us and for all the creation. So death will not have the final word. Is there a God? I say this personally, but I, I, all know, I also know this is the feeling of many Christians who've wrestled long and hard with this question. This is the only thing that makes sense of our world. That not only does God exist, 
but He came to us. He stepped out of the shadows and He lived in our world. And He died to conquer evil and death, to rescue us, and to give us the hope of a life that is without evil, where love and righteousness reign in the world. This is not a hoax. God reigns. And He has won the day. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.